Erev Tov, everybody. Welcome to another edition of our Thursday night class. Tonight we are studying Parashat Yitro, Parasha of the Ten Commandments, the Aseret Hadibrot. We made it. We are out of Egypt. It's been a few days and we've reached Harasinai here at the climax of probably Jewish history, where we are, what we have today. And uh, what we continued to preach was all from that moment at Ma'amad Har Sinai. However, hidden in the parasha is um, the introduction to a man who I guess doesn't need much introduction, being that he was the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, the father of the greatest prophet of the Jewish people. And a man who came from very, very... Low ranks, yet high ranks. He was a Kohen Midian. He was a priest of the Midianites. Someone very, very well respected. But that being said, he was also a chief idolater. And he joined the Jewish nation. And it's a big machloket in the Gemara, whether or not Yitro joined the Jewish nation before Matan Torah, as is hinted in the beginning of this week's parasha, or did he join... Uh, after Matan Torah, and therefore the order of the parashiot are not written in chronological order. Nevertheless, it was something to celebrate. It was something to celebrate when someone, uh, a leader of such a great tribe outside of Klal Israel, sees the the greatness of Hakadosh Baruch Hu and the miracles, as Rashi says, He heard about Kriyat Yamsuf and Milchemet Amalek. And he decided to join Klal Yisrael as a result. But with Yitro's appearance comes with it a piece of advice that he gives Moshe and found in the beginning of the parasha. When the celebrations in honor of Yitro's arrival finally come to a close, Moshe Rabenu returns to his regular job. His job of judging the people. And upon seeing this, Yitro gives him some counsel that the system that Moshe Rabenu employs in judging the people is inefficient. It's impossible to continue managing the people this way because Moshe Rabenu alone judges every person individually. He will wear out. He will burn out, as we say. And therefore, an orderly judicial system must be established. Today, with your permission, I want to share an idea, uh, a, a profound idea, one that probably makes you think. And you have to be a scholar uh, like Rav Steinsaltz, who this is from today, to really read between the lines and come to a conclusion of, A, what happened to Moshe's, what was Moshe thinking that he could actually judge the entire nation on his own. And uh, two, was indeed Yitro's advice of building ju- the judiciary system the correct one in the long run? And the ideas we're going to say tonight are based on his essay found in his book, Talks on the Parasha, that it was necessary for Yitro to offer this advice is very, very puzzling. Our ancestors were not uh, desert-dwelling Arabs who knew nothing about administration and judicial systems. 
Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, did not come from the desert. They spent many years in Egypt, 210 years. Egypt was the America of their time, an organized country with a good deal of bureaucracy, got government, hundreds of years of experience in state administration, goes back to the time at least of Yosef, where he was put in charge. It is unsurprising that they are uh, unfamiliar with an administration such this, or a judicial system. And even when the state of Israel, Medinat Israel, was established, only a few members of the Knesset actually had parliamentary experience to, to begin. Moshe was not like that. Moshe grew up in the palace of Paro. Throughout his childhood, he wandered around the royal court. So the, he knew how to run a state. Paro was his stepfather, his step-grandfather. But in essence, he was. This is who he saw every single day running the greatest country at the time. He knew how to run a state. And therefore, Yitro's advice was not something new to him. So why then, when he became a leader of Bnei Israel, did Moshe Rabbeinu create a situation that was bound to fail? Why did he wait until Yitro came and gave him advice to institute an organized legal system that was obviously necessary? So, before I continue with Rav Steinzel's essay, it's important to highlight that this question has been addressed by many, many commentators. That said, Oramor, the Orachayim. I want to focus just on one quickly, the Abarbanel, who lived in the 1400s from Spain and Portugal, Italy, one of the great Sephardic Chachamim of the Golden Age of Spain, a little bit later, in fact. And he actually says that Yitro's plan was not one that was divinely inspired uh, or especially insightful. It was a basic plan, like, like we said. Any, any human being can come up with something like that if you think about it. But his chidush is that according to the Abarbanel, Moshe Rabbeinu actually had intended to implement a similar judicial system himself right after he gave the, the, the Torah at Har Sinai. Once the Torah was given, he was, Moshe Rabbeinu had planned to implement this. But for the sake of treating Yitro with honor and respect and giving him the kavod that he needed, being that he was a newcomer to the nation, Moshe Rabbeinu did not reveal to Yitro that he had already thought of the idea to establish a judicial system. So we can learn, first of all, a couple of lessons from what the Abarbanel says. Number one, at times, it makes sense to withhold some information for the sake of the honor of another individual. Moshe honored Yitro by agreeing to implement his plan rather than revealing, ah, I already thought of the plan myself. And two, Moshe's withholding of the information also speaks to his humility, to the anava of Moshe Rabbeinu, by selflessly allowing another person to receive the credit, not just then, but for the next thousands of years, people reading this parasha that Yitro was going to receive the credit for a plan that he himself was intending to, uh, to implement. That's the answer of the Abarbanel. But we need to figure out 
why did Moshe Rabbeinu wait until Yitro, if he, indeed he didn't know? What, what was he waiting for? From a practical standpoint, if you think about it, it's not clear how Moshe thought he was going to manage the people. You know, he had to lead a nation and guide millions of people in their individual lives, not to mention the, uh, the special problems that inevitably arise within families and amongst friends. The reality of life is that people come across difficulties of all types and all sorts, creating the need for an effective, an effective legal system. And yet, under Moshe's leadership, there was only one place to go, which was him. There was no courts. It was Moshe. Life without arguments and fights is an impossibility. It just doesn't work. It didn't work then. It doesn't work today. People are always going to find a way to argue with one another, even for no special reason, unfortunately. Not only that, Moshe didn't only serve as the nation's judge, but he was also their, their rabbi. He was their speech, spiritual leader. Even without all the fights and the arguments, even without all the monetary cases that he had to decide, it would be impossible for him to answer the halachic questions that must have been posed to him, especially after giving the Torah. Almost everything is askable. Almost everyone has something to inquire about and ask. Can this pot be used for meat and for milk? Which one does it belong to if I did this and I cooked it with this? Is this allowed on Shabbat or it's not allowed on Shabbat? What happened if my mezuzah wasn't written properly? Can I put it on my door? Question, thousands of questions people can ask a rabbi. And even if a person was to sit day and night to answer these questions, it's not enough. In fact, there's a story about a daughter of a rabbi of a small community who, upon getting married, requested that a certain condition be written in her ketubah, be added to her ketubah, stating that her husband not serve as a rabbi. Why? Because she said in her father's home, who was a rabbi, from early in the morning until late at night, there were always people around. There were always people asking questions about their own personal lives, about Judaism, in ways to come closer to God. She didn't want to live that way. So she made a stipulation in the Ketubah. My husband cannot become a rabbi. He can go learn, but he can't be a rabbi. I can't, I can't live that type of life, knowing that my husband is not going to be there most of the day. At the time of Parashat Yitro, B'nai Israel numbered over 600,000 people between the ages of 20 and 60. 600,000 men, sorry. Even if each person only needed to ask a question once in a while, it would be an enormous amount of questions. Even if Moshe Rabbeinu was to answer every question with a yes or a no. One word. When you multiply this by thousands, it becomes impossible. So in light of this task, this enormous task that Moshe Rabbeinu accepted upon himself, it's hard to understand how he found time to do anything else. Even greet his father-in-law for that matter, which he did at the beginning of the parasha. Just greeting him would have taken away precious time to answer She'elot. Needless to say, such a situation is intolerable from the people as well. One can easily imagine 
the lineups around the tent of Moshe Rabenu. The lineups to get a, a COVID shot or a COVID test today is crazy. Imagine the thousands and thousands of people going to one destination. Imagine there's only one place to get your COVID shot or your COVID uh, test. How long that line would be? How can it work? The waiting time. They were getting frustrated. So again, only reinforces our question, which is how can Moshe Rabenu have run things this way? What made him think it could work? So Rav Steinzel says that Moshe Rabenu was not motivated by practical considerations, but rather it was out of consideration stemming from a totally different yet essential outlook in life. And this case reflected a matter of principle for Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe and Yitro do not differ in their reasoning on the practical question of which is more effective, to have a judicial system or not. What they differ on is whether it is at all appropriate to build a kind of hierarchical system within the Jewish people. Yitro is suggesting that you have a system of ranks within the Jewish people. When a person has a question or a problem, he turns to the person who's in charge of him. There's leaders of tens. And then there's leaders of hundreds. And thousands and ten thousands. And that person, in turn, has his own superior who's in charge of him. So on and so forth in the hierarchy until it reaches Moshe Rabbeinu himself. This, this is um, a situation which is created... A higher rank and a lower rank. Moshe is not interested in such a structure. He doesn't like this. Neither from the standpoint of his own personal inclination, nor the consideration of the matter itself. Moshe Rabbeinu opposes the idea completely to divide the people by class or by rank, such as Sare Alafim, Sare Meot, Sare Chamishim, Sare Asarot, as it says in the parasha. When the people of Am Yisrael come to Moshe Rabenu, they say to him, you speak to us and we will listen. Daber ata imanu in this week's parasha. Ve'al yedaber imanu namut. Don't let God speak to us because we're going to die. In fact, in Sefer Devarim, Parashat Vaitchanan, they expand on this episode in greater detail. This is not a simple matter for Moshe. What do you mean? You don't want to talk to God? How do you want to talk to God? No, no, I, I, I'd rather you talk to God, Moshe says. Why do you want to talk to me? Why not just look up to Shamaim? So he goes to God and he tells him that this is what the people want to do, that they want to talk to me instead of you. And what does God tell him? No, what they said was good. He confirmed. They have spoken well. Moshe's ideology, and here's the kicker, Moshe's ideology was that every Jew should aspire to the highest level. Moshe believes that every member of Klal Yisrael should receive the Torah directly from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, just as perfectly as he received it on Har Sinai. Moshe responds the same way when Yahushua runs to tell him about Eldad Umeidad, prophesizing in the camp. Yoshua's in shock. 
Who gives these right, the right to these individuals prophesize on their own? And he's fuming. And he runs to Moshe to tattletale on him. What does Moshe Rabbeinu say? Says to, what does he say to, to Yahushua? He responds, would that all of Hashem's people would be prophets? Umi ten kolam Hashem nevi'im. Ha! I wish everybody was prophets. Here's Yahushua, red face. You see smoke coming out of his ears, upset that the audacity of these two individuals prophesies not in front of the... Uh, not in front of the rabbi, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, I wish everybody would do the same. Not only did he say that out of politeness or of humility, he did that because that's the way he sees things. Just like Eldad and Medad prophesies, so Moshe wants to be, wants there to be 600,000 prophets. That's what he wants. This is not just his personal desire. The Torah itself describes the Jewish people as follows. As a nation, it's a nation of wise people, understanding people. The notion of an entire people that is wise and understanding is a basic tenet in our belief system, in who we are. In every society, in every culture, there is usually a class distinction between the learned and the unlearned and the ignorant. And often that's what creates the social framework. The aspiration of Klal Yisrael, of the Jewish people, is always to chase wisdom, to chase Chochmah. We believe that every Jew is wise and understanding. Every member of Klal Yisrael should reach the highest level possible. And that's why there's a fundamental difference between the Jewish people and other societies. Only in the last few decades are the governments of the world waking up and saying, oh, you know what, we need to get everyone educated. But in the olden days, it wasn't like that. If you weren't just inherently smart, okay, you, you were a smart guy. Everybody else, they worked in the fields. They just worked with their physical self. But everybody is, every Jew is Am Chacham Ben So there's no point at which a Jew is told that he is no longer permitted to understand and to gain more wisdom. It doesn't work like that. Even in Har Sinai, when Hashem spoke with Bnei Yisrael face to face, everybody was here. Everyone was present. No distinctions, no differences. Men, women, children, one society. And we see this very frequent in our in our tests in our in our texts. Every human being, according to his deeds, can merit a level which the Shekhinah rests on him. The Rambam famously says in the Yechot that everyone can be a Moshe Rabbeinu. Nah, I can't be Moshe Rabbeinu. It's impossible. Me, Moshe Rabbeinu? What am I? Just, I'm a 9-to-5 I'm a guy. I go to work. I barely get up for Minyan. But you could. You could be a Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe's policy is, a, is the principle that all people are equal. Everyone is equal. And therefore, when you create a hierarchy... Mr. Father-in-law Yitro, you spell the ruin for Am Yisrael because it ruins people's equality. What did Korach say? Korach said, The entire assembly are all holy. And God is in their midst. So you, Moshe and Aaron, why are you 
raising yourself above them? Why are you considered loftier than them? How can the people be divided in different ranks? Moshe insisted on judging himself because he thought that no one would be barred from approaching him. No one was going to be stopped at the door and say, oh no, you're not good enough. You can't talk to Moshe. What are you talking about? I want to answer everybody. I want to speak to everyone. Why should anybody be uh, relegated to leaders of 50s or leaders of 10s? They can't talk to Moshe Rabbeinu. They can't talk to their head rabbi. I want everyone to talk to me. Every person's important enough to go to Moshe. Moshe doesn't set up an organized structure because it doesn't occur to him, not because it doesn't occur to him, but because he doesn't want one. And although creating such a hierarchy now gives new positions of power, exalted leaders, these leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, so on and so forth, what ends up to with the rest is that they become insignificant. They become commoners. They become lowered, debased. And all this runs counter to that the whole nation, the whole community is holy. The idea of establishing uh, ranks, hierarchy within the Jewish people is so problematic in the eyes of Moshe that he's willing to bear not only his own personal suffering because Yitro is telling him, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn out. But also, he understands the system's inevitable collapse. It cannot work. And it's obvious that such a system cannot endure, but Moshe Rabbeinu is trying so much to keep it going, as long as he can. He knows it's not going to work. But he's pushing, he's pushing, because he wants to give everybody a chance. Because for him, it's a matter of principle. Now, what happens in practice? Well, in practice is what we have today. Today we have a Bet Din. And Yitro, in fact, did institute, he implemented this judicial system. Yitro thinks much more practically. And he recognizes that what Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to do is impossible. Behind his view, there's a great deal of common sense. How is it possible to create a nation where everybody's on the same level? The whole idea of equality is impractical, says Yitro. In fact, if you actually... I wonder if uh, university scholars or professors talk about this whole idea of, of, of democracy, which is the world that we live in. Today's Western world of democracy is, is, is taken for granted as, as an ideal that is prized over anything. Nothing beats democracy. But the truth is, in many, many ways, democracy is a system that is unrealistic. It's, a, it's illogical. When a person has a stomach ache, his stomach is hurting, he's sick, he doesn't go and ask three different members of parliament what he should do to take a vote to determine what he should do. That's not what happens. But that's what democracy is. There could be a hundred and uh, however many people are sitting in parliament. There's 120 people sitting in the Knesset in Medinat Israel. All of them are wise. All of them are discerning and understanding. They're full of chokhmah. Look what they made. They made... Heads of government. But if they're opposed by one doctor, you're going to rely on the doctor. You're not going to rely on the 120 people majority. Whoever they are. So common sense dictates that the opinion of the expert should be valued over the opinion of the majority, of the masses. 
And this is true not only for medical questions, but of much larger questions as well. The idea that any ordinary person can decide complicated questions of economic policy, international diplomacy, is illogical. We are seeing it right now. Current events with, with, should we go back to school? Should we not go back to school? So, who do we do? We advise. We advise with this doctor. We advise with that doctor. Okay, we make, we make a decision. What, what's, what they think is best. But in the end, it's people that probably shouldn't be making the decision in the first place. You should have a consensus among medical experts, and that's it. But democracy says that the premier makes a decision. The prime minister makes a decision. But they're not the experts in the field. So why? Because they want the majority to make the decision? Well, yeah, that's a democratic society. That's what, we, that's what happens nowadays. But you see how many times it's unrealistic. It's illogical. So the idea that people are equal to one another in wisdom or ability, that's false. And people are not the same, whether in their height, they're not the same in their appearance, and they're not the same in their intelligence. In Moshe's case, the principle of equality springs not from actuality, not from practicality, because in that case, like we said, not everyone is equal. That's because Moshe Rabbeinu, his idea of equality is stemming from the soul. It's stemming from the neshama, which is unconnected to intellect. It's unconnected to reason. A soul, a neshama, is something that's abstract. It's above all else, totally spiritual. On the plane of the neshama, there is no criteria by which to determine who is higher and who is lower because every Jew has a, a holy neshama and therefore so Moshe Rabbeinu is saying yes everyone could be equal and yes everyone can approach me if they want to approach me delegating authority that is resulted from Yitro's advice is technical and the divisions between the higher and the lower judges are practical. But not essential. Yes, it's true, B'nai Israel are now arranged in different ranks. But when someone becomes a leader of thousands, or a leader of hundreds, or of tens, this person does not mean that he's a hundred times wider, wiser than the person of tens. The leader of a thousand is not a hundred times wiser than the leader of tens. In fact, it could be that he's not wiser at all. In practice, yes, we have to establish ranks. That's the way it is. Because otherwise, there's chaos. Everyone will do what they want. You're going to wear this. You're going to wear yourself out. The people will wear themselves out. They can't handle it. So one idea, one lesson that we can take from this is that according to the Torah, there is no person, no matter what level or rank he is at or sitting at, there is no person who cannot be questioned. No one is immune. The Gemara says in Masechet Kiddushin, even father and son, even rabbi and student, when they are engaged in Torah study, they become each other's enemies, says the Gemara. The Talmud could have used a much Simpler example of this. Even two friends who study together and begin arguing until the roof shakes. Okay, use an example of two friends. 
But the example that the Gemara uses is precisely that of a father and a son, or a rabbi and a student, to teach us that although the son is obligated to respect the father and honor him, also in this week's parsha, and although the student is obligated to honor his master and his teacher, he does not have to agree with him. A person's duty to honor his father and teachers means that he just has to show them respect when asking the questions. But that doesn't mean that he can't question them. Respect means that you have to ask questions in a courteous manner. And if it's a public setting, vadai, you can't cause shame, can't embarrass in public. But it doesn't mean that there's anyone in this generation or in any other generation who is immune from questions. There's a famous machloket between Hillel and Shammai regarding the quantity of water drawn, uh, of dra- sorry, the quantity of drawn water that renders a mikveh unfit for use. If water is drawn in a, in a vessel, if it's a certain amount, the mikveh is pasul. A dispute that went on for months, if not years, and was only resolved when two weavers entered from the gates of Yerushalayim and testified that Shmaya and Aftalion had given a different amount in contrast to what Hillel and Shammai said. And they codified the law like those two weavers. The law was not decided in accordance with Hillel and Shammai, the two greatest leading Chachamim of the of the world at the time, the Nasi and the Avbeddin, but rather was codified like the opinion of those two lowly weavers who came from the, from the Dunk Gate in Yerushalayim, one of the most horrid places in Jerusalem, despicable places, but that's where they came from. But they remembered what Shemayan Aftalion had said, their teachers, the teachers of Hillel and Shammai. So when we say that this great nation is certainly a wise and an understanding one. It takes on a practical meaning. Everyone can ask questions. No one is immune from them. Even if one studies Torah diligently with understanding and holiness for 70 years, that doesn't mean that the Torah is only in his hands. It doesn't mean it cannot be into the hands of someone else. And in that respect, even though Yitro's advice was adopted at the time of Kal Israel in the desert till today, 5781. It was adopted. It was established as a framework, as a political framework, not an essential one. Ultimately, it was the principle that Moshe Rabbeinu advocated. That's what remained the true uh construct of the essential framework of what he felt society needs to be. If it was only possible, the problem was it wasn't possible. If it was only possible, Moshe's original method of judging and answering all questions would be implemented practically as well. All questions would come directly to Moshe. Whether it was a young child who found a piece of candy and needed to know if he needed to return the candy or not. Or it was a Nasi, a tribal prince, who seeks a resolution of 
a dispute over territory and land. Whatever it is, it would have all went to Moshe Rabbeinu if Moshe Rabbeinu really, really had his way. But it just wasn't practical because reality has its limits and doesn't allow for such a system to survive. But that does not negate the intrinsic value of Moshe Rabbeinu's system. It only negates the, its practical viability. And even after the dust settled and Yitro's system was put into place, and rightfully so, it is clear to us that Moshe Rabbeinu's way is the way that needs to be. And there's, there's still a glimpse of that till today, where all the great questions, all the major questions, they go to the top. They go to the Moshe Rabbeinu's of each generation, the leading sage of the generation. It's an interesting take on the parasha. It makes you think a little bit of Yitro's advice. Of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to give him that honor. HaKadosh Baruch Hu named the parasha after him for this advice because he needed to protect Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was struggling. Parasha Devarim, he describes the, the, the people as, as arguers, people that made his life miserable in the courts, and he did it, and he did it with Ahava. On just on a practical standpoint, it couldn't work. Thankfully, he had his father-in-law come at the right time to join Klal Yisrael, a very, very wise man, a man of the Goyim. Yes, men of the Goyim can be smart too. They have what to offer. And they joined our nation. He joined our nation. He made it, he instituted something that we carry with us till today. But never forget what Moshe Rabbeinu's true intent was. If you focus on the soul, if you remove all reality aside, and all practicality aside, if you focus on the belief in the soul, something that is unconnected to intellect, something that is abstract and spiritual, like we said, then anyone, anyone can be like Moshe Rabbeinu. Wishing everyone a wonderful evening. Shabbat Shalom Borach.